go ahead and pray. Father, thank you that that is a promise that we can hold on to no matter what we're facing, no matter what storms come into our life, that uh, life or death, you will abide with us. It's a promise. It's something we can hold on to. and something that we can take hope and great comfort in. We pray now as we continue in our service that you would preach through your very imperfect and feeble servant to the people you've gathered in tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. Well, thanks all for coming out tonight. It is, um, <laughs> it is an unusual weekend. Um, so on Wednesday, I turned, uh, no, Thursday. Thursday, I turned 41 years old. I know it must be shocking to you to hear that I'm that age. But yes, I'm 41. And my boys decided to deliver a gift to me the day before. They delivered conjunctivitis. So... For the last four or five days, I have been battling this. It is not one yet. Therefore, as you walked in tonight, you may have noticed I did not do anything but wave from a distance at you. I only plan on doing that for the rest of the night. I do not want any of you to get this. But I just, there was, I could not imagine uh, canceling our time of worship. It needs to happen. And so I've got a word for you tonight from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, we took a break from Ecclesiastes for the holidays, uh, and we're taking up our study again of that book. Normally, when I'm preaching through a book like this, I always try to remind you uh, where we last left off, especially if it's been a couple months, so that we can sort of pick up the narrative appropriately. Uh, but Ecclesiastes is a different kind of writing style known as wisdom literature. Uh, the Psalms fit in that, the Proverbs, um, uh, Job would fit into wisdom literature, and then Ecclesiastes, of course, Song of Solomon. Uh, and, and basically what makes it wisdom literature is it's a, it's a collection of wise sayings or paragraphs about all sorts of topics. So we've talked uh, throughout Ecclesiastes just sort of randomly about the seeming meaninglessness of life, um, about the folly of pleasure or the fleeting sense of pleasure, the folly of power even, the folly of money, the futility of work. I mean, he's sort of gone over all of it, uh, all the things that we face on a daily basis. And so tonight's text is a little different uh, it's a little uncharacteristic for the preacher, the nickname of the author of this book, because tonight he actually talks about how to approach God in worship. Now granted, that he is writing somewhere between 500 and 1,000 years before the coming of Christ, maybe even a little after that, but much of what he says here still very much applies to us as we gather tonight for worship in this place. So with that as sort of prologue, let's go ahead and hear from the text what it actually says he says quote guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what that they are doing evil be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God for God is in heaven and you are on earth therefore let your words be few for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the, the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. The word of the Lord. So how does the preacher tell us in that passage that we are to prepare for worship? It's really what he talks about in his brief passage there. And I think in the first few verses what you find is that he tells us we should be attentive. We should be attentive. Listen to verse 1 again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now this is essentially saying when you come to worship, watch your step. Be careful. Now why? Well, take it in the context of the Jewish people at the time. This exhortation uh, would have been vividly understandable because as one approached uh, the temple, they would be surrounded by the sounds and smells of sacrifice. Because that is what was required in order to worship God in his holy temple. There were blood offerings and burnt offerings all around them. The place would have smelled of death and burning flesh. And why were those sacrifices taking place? To atone or take away the sins of the people. To pay, in a temporal way anyway, for the sins. Therefore, as you, as you headed to the temple for worship, as you headed to church, you were reminded just by the very senses around you that you were approaching holiness. You were approaching a holy God and you were reminded at the same time as you looked at that lamb or that, that dove or whatever it was being slaughtered that you were not holy. That was because you had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So too, each time we gather here for worship, every single time, what do we see up in front? We see a cross on the altar. We see a crucified one on the altar. Why? Is it just because we like nice-looking decor? No, it's, it's to remind us what it costs to come here. What it costs to know that our worship and our praise is actually heard by a holy God. When we look at the table next to me, what do we see? Well, we see the body and the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. So there's a sense in which we can identify with what the writer says. He says, be attentive. Be aware of what you're walking into. What does it look like for you to be attentive? Well, he goes on. He says, draw near to Listen, it's better to do that than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, his point is, since you're entering this holy presence of God, you don't come thinking that this is all about what you do. 
No, this, this time is about what God is doing. What God has summoned you here for. You come ready to hear from Him. Ready to be summoned by Him. Ready to receive from Him. This is a place where God wants to give you gifts. So come ready to receive. Listen. Over the last 11 years of my pastoral ministry, I've had uh, quite a few opportunities to do premarital and marital counseling. And with almost every couple, I've had to spend some time teaching or reteaching them to listen. Now, why is that? Because too often, as we grow in a relationship with someone, we begin to hear their words in the context of all the other experiences we've had with them, and we don't actually hear what they're trying to say. So I'll give you an example. A wife, in the context of Marriage counseling will say something like, you know, I just wish that you spent more time at home with me. I just wish you were home more. Now, in the practice that I have them do, what the husband is supposed to do, and I tell them this beforehand, or the, or the wife, is I say, you tell the person, the spouse tells you what they wish, and then all you have to do is you have to say, I hear you saying, and repeat back exactly what they said. Just repeat it. That doesn't happen often. Instead, the husband says something entirely different than what the wife said. Oh, so what I hear you say is that you don't want me to work so hard to put food on the table and provide our family with nice things. No. That's, I, didn't, I didn't say any of those things. I just, I just said I'd like it if you were home more. And that's usually when I have to interject. You heard what you wanted to hear, but you didn't hear what was actually said. Can you please repeat what was actually said? So in the same way, we often we come to worship prone to hearing what we want to hear and not coming to really listen to what God actually wants to tell us. And so the preacher says, before you come in even to the place, guard your steps. Watch yourself. Be attentive. Come ready to listen and to hear. In the same vein, the preacher urges us as we prepare ourselves for worship to, to be authentic. I think that's what verses 4 through 6 are saying. The preacher writes, quote, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Now again, in the historical context of this passage, when you made a vow to God, you were promising to do something for Him in exchange for Him granting you some sort of favor. That was the way it worked. And no doubt you've probably done something like this in your life at some point too, in just more of an informal way. God, I promise you, if you get me out of this jam, I'll never, I'll never do this bad thing again. God, I promise if you, if, the, if you cause this girl to say yes to me when I ask her out, I promise I'll stop cursing. Or God, I promise I'll quit drinking if you just get me out of this really scary situation. I mean, whatever, this is, the, this is a vow. This is the same thing. 
And the problem the writer of Ecclesiastes is addressing is the fact that people would come to worship, make big promises about all the things they were going to do for God, and then, of course, not follow through. And yes, we are often guilty of this too, even today in just a more informal way. And this leads to inauthenticity where people pretend to be more holy and devout than they are in the church. We do it in subtle ways. For example, in, in many modern worship songs, there are lyrics that often cause us to make unrealistic or somewhat dishonest claims. You know what I'm talking about. Or if you don't, I'll share an example with you. And because I'm an equal opportunity offender, let me pick a newer song's lyrics where this happens and an older classic hymn where this happens, okay? Where we sing words that we can't possibly live up to, but we sing it not necessarily even thinking about it. First, the newer song. And I'm not saying this to pick on the author or anything. I'm just pointing out something that's true. So here's the, song, here's the lyrics to a modern song. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. Who you love, I'll love. Who you, how you, who you serve, I'll serve. In this life, if I lose, I will follow you. I will follow you. End quote. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever that the intentions behind this song are good, right, and true. I'm not faulting the author for that. And I have no doubt that one can sincerely sing these words and mean them. But, and it's a big but, the truth is we don't always stay where he stays and we don't always move where he moves. We don't always love who he loves and we don't always serve who he serves. And if it means we might lose our lives to follow him, we might just whip out. But that's not as fun to sing as the first one. But again, it's not just new songs that do this. Uh, classic old hymn, I Surrender All. Oh, really? Oh, you have? All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Oh, oh, you have? I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all. No, you don't. You hold on too much. Stop your lying now. That might be temporarily true in a moment, maybe. I surrender. No. I surrender. No. That's more like it. All to. No. That's more like it. And I think what the author of Ecclesiastes is getting to, if we can apply it to a modern day context, is rather than making the big boastful promises about all the things that you're going to do for God, why don't you just stop? And be real about what you haven't done and what you hope to do for God. That's a lot better. It might just keep us from putting on the, the oft-criticized plastic versions of ourselves that we're prone to doing at church. Pretending to be something different than we really are. That's why he says it's, it's better that you don't make a vow at all than that you say you're going to vow and not pay up, not do it. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. 
Why should God be angry at your voice? Destroy the work of your hands. That's why, by the way, every week when we come together, we, we don't take time to do a confession of awesomeness. We take time to do a confession of sin. And this, this leads to the last exhortation to prepare ourselves for worship. And I think it's, it's very simply put in verse 7, be awestruck. So be attentive, be authentic, and be awestruck. Verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. In other words, we enter this place with reverence for him, for his name. We don't enter flippantly, but with recognition of who God is. Now, what does it look like to fear God? Well, I think there's two sides to answering that question. I mean, on the, on the one hand, there's the fear or reverence of his holiness and perfections. And this is actually emphasized in particular, particular at the very end of the book. There the preacher says in chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. End quote. If one listens to that sincerely, one can be overwhelmed by it quite quickly. I mean, just imagine how powerful and awesome this God is, that he has a record of every, quote, secret thing you've ever done. Picture coming into his presence at the judgment and him playing up on the big screen of heaven all that you've done. Yeah, that might cause you to fear. But there's a whole other side to fearing God or being in awe of Him. And that side rejoices in God's ability to hide our secret things in such a way that they will never be held against us. That they will never be shown on a big screen to our shame before the world. We stand in awe of that holy God because he, out of such great love for us, would shed his own blood to provide us a covering for our sins. So that when we do stand before him at the judgment, he doesn't see our sins. He only sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, we've all got secret things that are worthy of condemnation. But we stand in awe of a God who throws our sins as far as the east is from the west and simply refuses to remember them anymore. Do you believe that? That whatever you've done and whatever you will do, God has so much power that he can will himself to forget all of it and just see the righteousness of Jesus Christ in your place? Do you believe that it's all been wiped away? I mean everything? All of your failure? Reminds me of a story I heard a while back from my friend Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. 
middle-aged woman went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I had an abortion a number of years ago. And he said, okay. She said, well, I, I need to talk to you about the man I've since married. Okay, replied the pastor. Well, we, we met a while back and started dating, and I thought I, I should tell him about the abortion, but I just couldn't. And then things got more serious between us, and I thought I, I should really tell him about the abortion, but I just couldn't. And a while later, we got engaged, and I thought, man, I really should tell him about this, but I just couldn't. And then we got married, and I thought, I really need to tell him about this, but I just couldn't. So I needed to talk to someone, Pastor, and you're it. The pastor replied, well, you know, we, we do have a service for something like this. Can we go through that together? And so she agreed, and they did. They went through a service of confession and absolution, similar to what we do here every week, except this was specific to her, and she confessed before God in prayer that she had done this. And then he pronounced words of absolution very similar to the ones that I pronounced to you that declared that she was forgiven. And when they were finished, she said to him, Thank you, Pastor. I, I think I have the courage now to tell my new husband all about my abortion. And the pastor replied to her, what abortion? It's right to revere God who has gone to such great lengths to forgive us that even the, even the things that we feel the most deep, dark shame about, if we were to come to him now in the light of being covered by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, he'd say, what are you talking about? I don't see that. I don't know what you're talking about. All I see is a perfect person. All I see is the righteousness of my son. What are you talking about? But that's the God that the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to be prepared to worship. To come ready to hear, attentively. To be ourselves authentically. And ultimately, to bow before him with great awe. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, It is easy for us to struggle more with the idea that we're forgiven um, because there's a thousand voices all around us reminding us at any given time of the ways that we mess up, the ways that we fail. And so, Father, we need to be reminded again and again and again of the truth of this word. That you're a God who desires to know us for who we are, not to shame us, but to grace us so that we can believe more and more what your word actually says. That you've thrown our sins as far as the east is from the west, 
that we really are truly forgiven, not just in our imaginations, but in truth. So God, as we come preparing our hearts for your table, give us hearts that are ready to once again hear those words that the body and blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for the forgiveness of all our sins, we ask in his name. Amen.